As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by JJ Bull the Bullard. Hello, JJ. Hello. People call me that now when they see me in real life. Do they call you the Bullard? Yeah. Very rude. Yeah. yeah, I don't know them either. That's the thing. <laughs> also joined all the way from Central Europe uh, is uh, Ah Guten Tag, Herr Stafford Bloor. Wie geht's to? Wie geht's good, Herr Divine. Lovely. There we go. I bet you're good because it was a fascinating weekend of football. Yes, indeed. A man lost his job, and more will lose them soon. So we'll talk about that. Uh, of course, I refer to Watford beating Manchester United 4-1 at the uh, Vicarage Road Stadium there. <laughs> nearly forgot that. Nearly called it the Liberty Stadium. I think that's in a different country. Um, also, we'll talk a little bit about Liverpool-Arsenal, Norwich, Southampton, Tottenham, Leeds, Leicester, Chelsea. And towards the end of the podcast, a look forwards to the Champions League too, where uh, Game 5 is set to begin. This week. Very exciting. Very exciting stuff. Speaking of exciting stuff, Seb, did you know it's Black Friday? I did not, Joe. Tell me more. It's Black Friday whenever you're listening to this, as long as it's within the week of this week. And because of that, you can get The Athletic for £1 per month for 12 months. Blimey. That's just £12 a year. That's the maths. And that is an incredible deal for what you're actually going to get because The Athletic is the best sports writing in the world. If you uh, are a fan of a Premier League team, you can follow dedicated coverage from, uh, from one or a team of writers. But the best thing about it too is uh, you can also follow the same level of in-depth coverage for all sorts of other different sports too. Hey, this weekend I really enjoyed reading Laurie Whitwell and David Ornstein's piece on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer this weekend, JJ. What did you enjoy reading? I like reading everything that Dermot Corrigan writes. He focuses mostly on the Spanish football world and covered uh, Xavi his last name's Hernandez, I always forget that. Yeah. He's called Xavi. But Xavi's first game in charge of Barcelona and he beat Espanyol 1-0 and, and how the differences and the couple of debuts to some Barca B players. Lovely. Yeah. He's great. He's really good. Exciting stuff. And for £1 a month, you can't buy anything for that. No. It's incredible, isn't it? What was the last thing you bought that was a pound? Like crisps? A pog. You even bought a pog. Well, anyway, uh, so Seb, if you want to know where you can go to get The Athletic, visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. 
theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, and you'll be able to regale yourself of that fantastic deal. Get the deal now. Get it now. Get it. Get it. Get it. Get it. Today, uh, we'll be talking about all the football, um, and uh, I'll, uh, let's do that now. <laughs> that's, that's theathletic.com. This, this is going well. <laughs> forward slash TIFO. Would you, this is the second time we've done this. I'll leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace. There we go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mm, scenes at Vicarage Road there. Watford 4, 1 Man United. Seb, I don't know if that's the main part of the story, but it was certainly the precursor to the story. Yeah, strange story initially because that game felt like all of Manchester United's issues in caricature. There was a period of about maybe 30, 35 minutes where United probably could have conceded three or four times. And that doesn't include the two penalties that Watford missed. And it was was very hard to watch. I I said this to you at the time, we were talking during the game. I wasn't able to watch it because it was a 3 p.m. Blackout here. You were you were hearing sort of secondhanded through me what was going on. I just got a, a series of doom texts from Seb saying this is bad, this is awful, <laughs> something bad's happening. Well, it was the end in quote marks. I think after the games against Liverpool and Manchester City, it was very easy to say that okay, well, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer isn't a and his coaching staff aren't on a technical level of Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp. And so this is just a ruthless example of Man United's issues and flaws being exposed. When the same thing happens against Watford and arguably in a more comprehensive way, because the scoreline didn't do justice to the game, certainly not in the first half, then you can't really avoid it. It was a horrible moment of clarity, almost to the point where watching it was kind of awkward. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people in the, you know, especially my age, still quite enjoy Manchester United losing because, well, rivalry, schadenfreude, you know, tribalism, etc. This wasn't enjoyable. This was just a big mess of players lacking confidence, players not willing to do the things that they're supposed to do, or players lacking confidence and not really understanding what they're supposed to be doing in the first place. And this was all of those things in the same space. And it was really ugly. JJ, there was a selection of poor performances from the Manchester United team. Something we'd mentioned when we've spoken about this before. I think you've said that, you know, there's two things that can go wrong on a football pitch. One is that there can be a kind of structural issues that are based in the coaching where the players don't really know what they're going to do. The second is that the players can perform poorly or at least not appear to be trying as hard as perhaps they should be. In this game, it felt like both of those things were happening at the same time. Yeah, also those two can be linked. That You can look like you're not working hard enough because you don't actually know what it is you're supposed to be doing. And you can see the United's problem this season... Well, there's many, but like a few of them, they don't defend the wide areas very well because they've basically playing about eight strikers at one time because that seems it's like a a child's fantasy dream team where they put all the best players on the pitch because that therefore makes you the best. But you can't have players who don't do all the tracking back, and um, the wide areas. So you basically have four strikers. And then they have the rest of the players doing far too much work. You've got players like Scott McTominay in the midfield and McTominay's defensive positioning is, it's one of his weaknesses. Like he, he's not a centre-back for me. But you see it like the, when he brings down that player for the, one of the penalties, it's, he's not aware 
of what's going on around him. So you've got him and you've got Matic, who hasn't been the same player since he got his new contract, funnily enough. <laughs> Almost as if, hmm. Uh, then you've got Juan Basaka, can't really do much with the ball. He seems very nervous in possession of it. Luke Shaw has regressed uh, ever since the Euros. And that happens to a lot of players after a big tournament, though. Um, Maguire's all over the place. Lindelof is more of a, He's good on the ball. Oddly enough, Lindelof has been one of the players whose uh, form doesn't appear to have changed a great deal, uh, <laughs> partly because it wasn't fantastic beforehand, but also, to his credit, he was one of the better players in, in, in this game. He did uh, avoid making tackles when he should have made tackles, but I think that's people have come to expect that. From well, yeah. There's just so much wrong with how they set the team up. We talked a bit before about how they don't really press from the front. You don't have to do that. There's other ways to do it. But then everything else is disjointed. And so players aren't sure when to go and close someone down and, and when not. And David De Gea came out after the game and was speaking to the people with cameras. Mm, <laughs> the camera people. Yes, yeah, the camera yeah. people. And it uh, was pretty brutal and says they don't know what to do with the ball, which you can clearly see. They don't know what to do with the ball. They don't know what to do without the ball. He described it as a horrible moment, I think, which is... Pretty apt. He's essentially an arcade game at Rowan's where you just ping shots at him and he has to deflect as many as he can. And he got two penalties saved. Well done to him. And then I think the goal that Saar fired across him, across the box, I don't know enough about goalkeeping, but I think you'd expect him to maybe get down quicker or something. I don't know. He always dies with his legs. I think one goes through his legs. It's all to do with them not knowing what they're supposed to be doing at different times. And then when they make an error, there's two little effort like and another example is Anthony Martial I think for Watford's third goal um takes a bad touch <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Martial takes a bad touch for this third goal and then rather than like chasing it back because it's the end of the game when they're losing 2-1 you think well surely you'd be really going to try and win this ball back show some effort Sancho was doing it all game like working so hard off can the I, ball can I say that there was one thing that was interesting is uh, as I said before Seb was kind of texting me halfway through the game and I, I text him, oh, is, it, is it still bad? Is it still going badly? His response was, I think if you're a Manchester United fan, you don't want the team to score an equaliser at this point. It was 2-1 to Watford. And I can understand why you said that, Seb, because in many ways it felt like the boil needed lancing. You know, that's a very horrific way of describing the situation. Uh, but uh, not calling anyone a boil, but it did need lancing. Well, yeah, because, and also when I texted you, there was this 10, 15 minute period where you could feel what was about to happen next. Donny van der Beek scored one. Jaden Sancho put in a really good cross for Cristiano Ronaldo, which he missed, should have scored. Free header, like nine yards out. And it felt as if it needs to remain this bad because it needs to be overwhelming to force some kind of action. Because one of the things that was interesting after the loss to Manchester City was the United clearly briefed the media to say, you know, there's, there, there are no plans to remove Solskjaer. He's safe. We haven't even considered it. And... In one sense, that sounds like a vote of confidence. In another, it just portrays a kind of a very hapless form of succession planning. And the idea that sort of you don't have a strategy for what might happen next when you're going through a really bad run is kind of worrying. And so I, it felt as if the tone of the defeat needed to remain horrific to change the mindset. And clearly it did, because it. I don't think it got worse in the first 30 minutes because everything that happened in the last sort of 10 was partly to do with the, you know, the red card. Let me ask you this, though, Seb. Knowing what you know about uh, how Manchester United reacts to things and performs at a board level, if Solskjaer's team had come back to draw that game 2-2, do you think he would have been sacked? No. Which is extraordinary, given that all of the bad things already happened in the first half, right? Like, the, the reason that he should be sacked 
is because of what happened in the first half, irrelevant of whether they come back into the game or not in the second. Uh, it, and, and, and I believe you, I think that is true. I think he wouldn't have been sacked if, if the game had been a, a draw and it just would have dragged on longer and longer. The theory here is that Manchester United's uh, board of directors, they wanted to recreate this thing that happened with Alex Ferguson. They wanted to back a struggling manager through the difficult times and then start the, a 20-year dynasty or whatever. And I think the thing that is sort of perhaps obviously forgotten in this case, is that Sir Alex Ferguson was an extraordinary outlier. (laughs) It's not normal. It's not normal that someone is that good and needs that little bit of extra time. The idea that you would give Solskjaer another 12 months. I mean, an argument to say it has already been 12 months too long, JJ. I think what Solskjaer came in to do, he did very well. And I think what what he's shown is that he's a a competent manager who seems to be good at a man management level. There's lots to being a good manager. I mean, Thomas Tuchel is a tactical mastermind, also clearly far more intense and just knows more and just knows how to set things up and has his own team, whatever. United, like behind the scenes, the coaching is not thought to be of the best standard, I think. But that's before Solskjaer was even there. But they've had, should be world-class coaches come in under Mourinho and Moyes are still there. But Solskjaer's limitations have been in forming that, getting this group of players to work together. There's nothing wrong with getting good players in and then just letting them work, sort of work it out. I don't know what Zidane did, for, for instance, like how specific he was with tactics and stuff like that. I think he probably knows quite a bit because he's a genius. Yeah, he's an Zidane. He did also have uh, Casemiro, Tony Kroos and Luka Modric in his midfield. Well, yeah, and not McTominay and Fred. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <sighs> there are so many limitations to this Man United team. He did getting to second, didn't he? And they're now in the Champions League and he's achieved what I think he was there for. But I think what we saw, and I think Solskjaer would probably agree, is that there are limitations to what he can do. And without having someone next to him, who was the, the Portuguese guy that supported Alex Ferguson, Carlos Cuero? So, so, I mean, he went to manage Real Madrid and all these other teams. So having that level to try and take it on a bit, because Ferguson at Man United would have been Archie Knox, first of all, would it? And then he came in with other assistants, um, Steve McLaren, future England manager. Well, very, very briefly... Ferguson had Walter Smith as his assistant, like with his 10 league titles in Scotland. Like that's the kind of caliber of assistant that used to be a Manchester United staple. And now it's Michael Carrick. I still don't know the first thing about what Michael Carrick is, is a, is a coach or Kieran McKenna, like Kieran McKenna, well thought of youth coach during his time at Tottenham. Of course, Pep Guardiola has a a couple of uh, good assistants there. Experienced assistants. Yeah. Well, Wamar Lijo, obviously um, not, Hugely successful coaching career, but very influential. A lot of ideas that and you know, quite old. He's old. Well, he is old, but in a kind of wise owl or oak tree sort of way. And I just think the point is, is that this is a it's a very overlooked part of the game. Like assistants aren't just like it, it, you could say, for instance, Jose Mourinho isn't quite what he is without Rui Faria. Like he, you know, when he got to Tottenham, he brought in uh, Jao Sacramento, who. Um, by all accounts, none of the players really liked, didn't seem to interact particularly well with him. So it's not a case of a coach is only as good as the assistants, but the assistants really important. And at Man United, they're just a collection of people. Maybe that's just my ignorance. Maybe I just haven't learned enough about them. But then that's not usually the case of places uh, like Manchester City or, you know, successful clubs. I agree. Well, let, let me put it this way. Right? Uh, JJ said already, Solskjaer was, he was successful in the first part of his uh, his career at Manchester United. He did exactly what they brought him into. The kind of trope that is, uh, that is uh, brought out regularly in this conversation is a fair one, I think, that he restored the club culture. Whatever the players think about his coaching ability or his ability as a manager, it's very clear that they like him a lot, right? There's like, I think there was genuine sadness as was reported around the 
around the dressing room that it hadn't worked out because he, by all accounts, is a nice person that is a very easy to get on with. People hold him in, in high regard as a person, right? But as JJ also said, the reasons that he is being sacked now were all kind of clear at least nine months ago. You could probably even say uh, longer than that, right? I know it's very easy uh, when a manager loses their job to look back with retrospect and say, oh, that was a warning sign or this was a warning sign. That's not what's happening with Solskjaer. It was very evident that the limitation, like where he was going to be able to take the team. So to go back to your point before, the idea that there is no succession plan at this point in the season, the idea that the, the, the team still appear to be hopeful to keep him in place until the end of the season, so that they can pick one of their uh, preferred options to take over. It seems extraordinary to me. It seems like so poorly managed as to almost be beyond belief for not only one of the biggest football teams in the world, but for a company that <laughs> makes millions of millions of pounds. How do you get to that level of mismanagement? Well, it's also out of step with how modern football thinks and not just at the highest level. If we think back to the recent international break, Norwich made a managerial change, Villa made a managerial change and just before Tottenham did as well. Now, the speed with which replacements were in position after the sacking suggests that clubs knew exactly what they were going to do or knew the group of people they were going to talk to before they even made the sacking. Or in the case of Norwich and Stuart Webber, as soon as Dean Smith was available they knew what they wanted to do and they went straight for it. And he was on a list yeah, somewhere. Exactly that, exactly that. And they they, they had a, a contingency. At Manchester United, I've always felt as if... We, we talked earlier about would Solskjaer have been saved by an equaliser at Watford? And I think sort of yes, but I think the truth behind that is that above Solskjaer and above the anybody who has a kind of a football-related job description are a group of people who don't really know very much about the game, want to be successful, desperately want to be successful. And they're kind of, they want people writing books about them one day and mm. they, they want to kind of feature in sort of nostalgic paragraphs about, oh, they brought back Ronaldo and they paid this amount of money for this and they, they kept faith in the old you know club legend. All of this kind of stuff, which doesn't really mean anything. But the problem is, is that without expertise at that level, without mm. people that don't necessarily need to have played the game or coached to a high level, but without people who understand what football is and what you need within a coaching staff and what you need within a manager and understand like what a squad's demographics should look like and you know how many veteran players should we have and how many young players, like proper overseers, really, really qualified sporting director types. Well, if you don't have those people, how do you know what the problems are and how do you know how to fix them? And in that context... If you're just drawing games cool. rather than losing them, and this is a trend with Man United to be going for a very long time, bad performances, but goals which appear from nowhere and turn bad performances into three points, one point. When that happens, it's very, very easy just to do nothing yeah. because you think, well, league table says everything's okay because we're in the top four. And that is Man United. Well, also, I mean, another another reason that causes it to be easy to do nothing is because it's not really clear, at least from the outside, who's supposed to do the thing, right? We've got yeah. Ed Woodward, who has said he's going to retire. Unclear as well, when that's going to happen or resign. You know, yeah. I said retire because in my football manager save, they keep calling it retire. <laughs> <laughs> Two worlds have blended. He's going to resign at some point. We're not really clear when. Richard Arnold, who I believe is the is the managing director, is is thought to be the person taking over. But again, we're not really clear when that is the case. We've got John Murter there, who is the football director, but is not the director of football. Not really clear what the difference between those two things are. It's not obvious 
who even made the decision. And there were lots of reports over the weekend about there being a kind of emergency board meeting or whatever after the Watford game. Who who's who's in the conversation? I don't you I don't know. It was someone evil like in um, Inspector Gadget. Sure. And you never see his face. It would make more sense. And then it's just only to the back of the chair and the cat. Yeah, Jeremy Irons or something. When I was reading about what happened over the weekend, one of the one of the things that piqued my interest was a, I don't know if this is factually correct, but apparently a four-hour Zoom call took place, an emergency Zoom call. And That's too long. What on earth did, <laughs> too yeah, but what, what did they talk about? For four hours? What did, do you think they have a Zoom Pro account? Well, they must, four hours, they must I do. like the idea that Man United don't have a Zoom Pro account and they just kept restarting the meeting every 40 yeah, yeah, minutes. Yeah. I'll send a just, new link. Just rejoin the yeah, link. I'll send a new yeah. link, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the Watford game has happened. If you're having a four-hour emergency board meeting to discuss a trend which has been in action for well, okay, let's let to, to be fair to them though. Let's say let's let's to be let's be fair to them and say you you agree within the first two minutes that you're going to sack the manager. Presumably, you spend the rest of the time trying to work out how to do that politely. Do you know what I mean? How to do that? How to do that well? You spend the last three hours planning the video, the exit video that he's going to film, which. Uh, is very strange. And then the last five minutes, uh, you just work out what the compensation is and then chuck a bit extra on top for being such a good boy. <laughs> so, so, the, so the outcome of this meeting, okay, the outcome of this four hours is the decision to get rid of Solskjaer, fine, and the plotting of some kind of finesse to make it palatable to fans or, you know, that kind of stuff, whatever. But that's like 12 minutes worth of stuff. So for, for four hours and you come out and your solution is... I feel like maybe it's longer. Yeah, but well, you know... <laughs> I feel but, like yeah, talking but, about like firing someone takes a bit longer than 12 does minutes. Does it? I agree with you that I reckon it... I, I will say I bet it took longer than it needed to, but I also think it takes longer than 12 minutes. Well, no, because it's the, the, the conclusion is he's got to go, but we've got to be nice about it. Job done. Okay, right. We'll get, yeah. the, get the PR people, get the, get the marketing people involved in this and we'll draft a statement and we'll make sure that we'll have a little bit of a, um, a strategy for how we roll out the content because sure. Man is just really... Do you know, I like, like the idea that Solskjaer gets like a G-Cal invite? <laughs> Zoom call, sack Ollie. <laughs> It's like, oh, no, I don't want to join that one. Sure, sure. <laughs> What's this about? <laughs> Just to be clear, this is all for fun fantasy purposes. Wouldn't suggest for a minute that that would actually happen at the football club that we're talking about. Let's talk about what comes next now, JJ, because I expect the other three hours and 48 minutes uh, that they weren't talking about sacking him were was the time that was spent talking about who would come next. Because uh, as we said, it seems sort of unclear uh, at the moment. There's talks of interim managers that they, they want to bring someone in until the end of the season, apparently, before they get their person in the summer uh, be the next permanent choice. Uh, it currently, I, I've read a few things over the weekend. I'm not that clear right now whether it is Michael Carrick in charge or it's Darren Fletcher in charge or it's a combination of the two of them or something. I think it's Carrick, isn't it? I don't know. It like, I thought it more like Fletcher. He came in as technical lead or something like that. He, he's technical uh, director at the moment. Yeah, he's, he's been, also been running doing, sessions as well. Yeah, I thought. I don't not know. Sure. Well, anyway, uh, regardless of that, for, for the VRAL game, which is, I believe, this evening as we release this, uh, it will be Michael Carrick in the dugout. For the rest of the season, who would you go with? I mean, there aren't too many options, I suppose, of people that you would, A, want that job, and B, want that job just until the summer. Steve Bruce. Steve Bruce. <laughs> he did say he would be in, he'd be up for it. I think it'd be great if I Steve Bruce went. Yeah. I'd really love it, but also seriously. Well, there's the talk of um, old Pochettino. Yes. Everyone's favourite. I would have thought Pochettino might be someone they tried to get in the summer. Well, you think for him, because he's currently at 
a gigantic club who should win everything that they are in because they have the best, one of the best squads I've ever seen. It's like a cheat team. But he didn't win Liga on last year, did he? He should win it this year. Champions League, you'd think you'd have a bit of a go with Neymar and Messi in the same side. Well, the BBC are reporting that Maurizio Pochettino is open to leaving PSG if Man United mm. uh, make an approach. I mean, he would probably be a good option for them. Sure. I don't know who else is available. Thomas Tuchel would be amazing, but they won't get him out well, of Chelsea. Early. He's a bit busy, isn't he? Jurgen Klopp's busy. Lots of people wanted, uh, or lots of the supporters wanted someone said like Ralph Rangnick to come in until the end of the season. Is that feasible in the slightest? I don't think, I don't think Man United are built to accommodate someone like Rangnick because he would want to oversee some kind of revolution of the kind of the, the technical departments and you may not have not built to do that. They also, I don't think the Glazer family, they like occasionally spending money on very, very famous players that can be used for kind of uh, social media purposes and to attract a lot of attention and investment. But in terms of their infrastructural spending, like for instance, like Old Trafford, for example, or the state of the training facilities, they, those aren't the kind of things that they get behind. And yet that would probably be the focus of someone like Ranick. Yes, appointing head coaches and scouting players and all that kind of stuff, but also um, to create a system that facilitates success. And I, I don't think it suits. And sustainability. Yeah, and that's not Man United, is it? It's odd as well, depending who you get in. So who, you will, who the manager you get in, you have to think about what the players they have. This is really relevant to what Seb's saying, actually. Like Pochettino's game is based around mostly kind of a mid-press, a really aggressive mid-press with players there. They're not being... I mean, maybe he will maybe he can. I've, I just don't see how you make those players do that. You have to change the way you play. And you see the way PSG don't really play like a Pochettino team. They play like how PSG have to with the players that they have. They've got to press in a different way and win the ball in certain areas, different to how Spurs played. Because he had more, I would say, workman-like players at Spurs, which suits exactly his style. Because he was you know, a hard, well, he's a hard-working centre-back, wasn't he, right? So that's often the, the team is in the image of the manager like Simeone's Atletico or Guardiola's Man City so you bring Pochettino in and then you think you try and make it a Pochettino team but you've got players like Ronaldo, Sancho, Rashford I don't know if that works um, I'm sure they're good players so a, a competent manager would be able to make that work but when you look at who's a very uh, well-known manager with a, a massive pedigree who would be able to make superstars play well Zinedine Zidane did that at Real Madrid but it seems to be very much the case that he doesn't want to work in England we don't think he speaks English either. Probably not a problem anyway. But uh, then like, who else you've got? Uh, Eric Ten Hag, uh, Ajax, who they've conceded two goals in the league this season. Uh, they've won all their Champions League games. They play nice football. Sure enough, the Eredivisie is not as contested as others, but it's still difficult to make a team go from being sometimes challenging to being the leader. He's very highly thought of. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good coach, right? So sure enough, you've got the best team, but you still have to make them the best team in the first place. Brendan Rodgers, of course, at Leicester. But and you look at Rodgers, and I like Rodgers as a manager, and did, like he was a phenomenal at Celtic, just set the standards so high. Um, obviously, he did very well with Liverpool as well. He did have Luis Suarez, one of the best players in the world at the time, pinging them in from 50 yards and stuff. But they were a good team. However, you look at Leicester this season, you've got a really good bunch of players who just look a little bit disjointed, a little bit unmotivated. And that's kind of the problem you have. It, it's not quite the same. The structural things aren't there, but they would have worked on everything for this weekend and it still wasn't quite there. And there was someone else I was going to say that might be decent for it. I can't remember who it was, but I'll remember him in a minute. Seb, who do you think? Well, I, I still think they made a mistake in not appointing Antonio Conte. I mean, because the advantage from United would have been was with Conte, you're not going to get a cycle which is more than three years. But you'd have created some material success because combining Conte with Manchester United's spending power and the individual talent within that squad creates 
okay, the opportunity to win things straight away, but also the opportunity to make a really good appointment in two, two and a half years time. And I think that's the way that May and I should have to think because at the moment, it's kind of strange, isn't it? That we're talking about, yeah, Zidane doesn't really fancy it. And I know times change, but it's, it is kind of a strange thing to think an out-of-work manager just doesn't fancy working for Manchester United. Doesn't that describe so much? It, and it also describes what needs to happen. Like you need to change the status of the club. You need to banish the perception that it's just somewhere where Okay, the owners are happy as long as it's top four and revenue streams are protected and, you know, enough famous players are walking through the door, then that's kind of okay. Because I I just don't believe that winning is important to Man United. It will be when it starts to impact the bottom line, right? And Matt Slater wrote a, a great piece for The Athletic, uh, released uh, yesterday evening, I believe, um, about this very matter. Yeah, but to me, that always feels like a generational shift, Joe. The kind of change which happens quietly over decades rather than seasons. Like, I... Yeah, um, yeah, it's been eight years, and Manchester United's star has dimmed in the footballing sense. But they're a commercial juggernaut still. They are still enormously wealthy. They're very, very successful off the field, and they will continue to be so. But someone like Conte, to his core, is about the game. Like say what you want about his management techniques and his way of handling players and how often he falls out with people. All of those things are true. But he is about the sport, and. Manchester United need that uh, or needed that. They're not going to get it now, of course. And then you could have had the situation where, okay, two, three years, then you go to the Pochettino, then you see who the the bright young coaching thing is in the you know, on the continent then. Maybe Nagelsmann, Nagelsmann is, be around, yeah. there you go. Maybe, maybe he's done everything he can with Bayern Munich and he wants to move on up or move to a different part of the uh, part of the continent. Do you, do you know as well, Seb? See, with like Conte as well, is that United's next manager has to be bigger than the players. He has to be like a massive presence. Not necessarily name, but someone who just commands that respect of everyone because it, I don't know internally, but I don't think you know, Solskjaer would have been thought of as this huge like oh wow here he comes I think this is another really overlooked thing in the game I think yes we like the idea that players want to play for clubs they do players want to play for coaches like, and players are want to attach yeah. themselves to guys who are successful or in Conte's case coaches who extract the very most out of their potential and yes it's very very true to say that there are players who have fallen out with him and fallen by the wayside John Obi Mikel I think is, is a, a, a quite a famous case but there are an awful lot more who have played at the highest level of their career under Antonio Conte, played the best football of their career under him. So someone like um, Romelu Lukaku certainly did, I would say. Uh, Latoura Martinez did and continues to as a result of Conte's effect. Victor Moses did. Marcus Alonso did at Chelsea. He fashioned a competent centre-half out of David Luiz at Chelsea. You know, like, it's not a 100% success rate, but it's a very, very alluring thing if you're a player. If I'm 25... And I want to reach the highest level I can possibly achieve in the game. I want to play for Antonio Conte. And you add Man United in there and their ability to write enormous checks and massive contracts. And that is a pretty irresistible formula. Do you know, I just thought it would be a really good option? Carlos Queiroz. <laughs> He's managing Egypt just now. Carlos Queiroz, yeah. He knows, he knows the club. He could be a good interim, couldn't Very he? Very highly rated manager and coach. Sure, yeah. Very close to Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, so I mean... Wouldn't that be good? That would be good. Imagine that happens. I mean, if it feels like it feels like Ronaldo's relationship with whoever brings in is really important because yeah, I don't know. Like it, it feels. I remember when 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 Ronaldo rejoined. I think one of the things we talked about was this kind of accelerates everything for Solskjaer because if things go wrong, having Ronaldo, like Ronaldo's like it's like starting a fire in your house. Like you, you can either use the fire to heat the house 
Put the heat on. It is because it's 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 a powerful force that you've brought in. I think, no, I think everyone knows you what you're trying it. to say. But like, you started that by saying you set fire to your house and you can either use that to heat no, you, the house. You you you, you really set a fire in your house. You set oh, a you fire in, in your house. The fireplace. You you set a fire. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. Ronaldo is that guy. Like, if you if you can't control him, if you can't com- appease like him, fire. things go wrong pretty yeah. quickly. A little bit. I mean, the same same was really true at Juventus. I mean, Juventus doesn't seem like a, a particularly healthy place at the moment, sure. and it didn't last season mm. either. And you may United. I feel like I feel like that's the direction they'll go. I think they'll try and appease Ronaldo with someone well, that he likes, and that will be another disaster. Solskjaer has left see. the club with third degree burns. Of course, they go the old. Uh... Not that, but you know, we'll be back after this break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're back. Um, let's talk about something else now. Liverpool 4, uh, nil Arsenal. Except Liverpool eased, eased to victory in this game, didn't they? It was quite... Um, I, we, we were chatting about it during the time and uh, the, during the second half, although they'd already looked fairly comfortable throughout most of the game, it looked like they just kind of clicked it up another couple of gears and then just uh, strolled to victory. I thought Liverpool were brilliant for 30 minutes after half-time. Like, the first half was quite even, but as soon as the first goal went in and Arsenal kind of had that sense of familiarity about being behind yeah. the, at Anfield, it seemed like all the confidence dropped out of them. One thing which was really strange, and maybe JJ's probably the, the better person to explain this, like no matter how many times it caused them problems and how many times they turned the ball over, Arsenal kept trying to do rondos in their own box and didn't really have the ability to play up the field from deep and to play kind of in close quarters like that. And yet they kept doing it and they kept giving the ball to... Salah or Oxley chamberlain or some other direct runner who just tore straight through them and created a, a mismatch somewhere. It was bizarre to watch. Well, they just look super highly coached. And the first half, I thought, was pretty boring until Arteta and Klopp had that little flare-up because it looked like, a, I think one of the co-commentators described it as like a chess match. It was, it was just like watching a bit of a training game, Arsenal trying to slow it down. It makes sense at Anfield, right? You want to slow things down and uh, try and take... I can't remember actually if this is how it went, but in my head this is what it was like. They were trying to slow things down and play the ball out from the back. Ben White trying to bring it out from the back as they do. They were sticking to all the principles that... Uh, Arteta has introduced and is trying to hammer home now and people think Arsenal are doing really well now even Klopp said that they've been playing quite well I think the teams that they put their best performances in was against Spurs where Spurs played without a midfield and were awful I don't think it was a case honestly of Arsenal I'm not trying to talk down Arsenal being good and I know I'm so I talk like I'm always slagging them off but I don't quite see it yet I think they look like they're, they're 
Uh, I believe Arteta is a good coach. I browsed through a Reddit thread the other day, which said exactly oh, no. that. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that you hate Arsenal. Oh, yeah, my dad's my dad. This about. helps you. My dad supports Arsenal. Does he? He does. Yeah, he's oh. from there. That anyway, explain, explains why you hate them so much. No, no, I don't. I like it when they do well. I don't mm. really care though. JJ, I am neutral. Oedipus Bull. Yes, anyway, I support Aberdeen, and that's enough for me. Sure. Anyway, mm. I'm not saying that Arsenal, like, Arteta's trying to take the passion out of Arsenal, like the energy and the, the, the huge work rate, because obviously he wants them to, to have that. But he's trying to make it methodical and logical and how they play is the way he wants them to. And you're taking away a little bit of creative freedom. But once you have that structure in place, that then allows you to be able to give individual players creative freedom. Mm. But when you have a team who is also really well drilled, and just has much better players and is more aggressive and just pushes up and goes at you, that they fall apart. Now, the other game that Arsenal got in was Leicester, who just played the first half like they weren't even there. Sure. And that's and then the second half, it was far more even and Arsenal were level with them. So I can't work yeah. out Arsenal. And their XG suggests that they're really inconsistent. And I just I just don't know where they are yet. So uh, we've talked about them an awful lot. But you see the level of difference, and it's not surprising because Liverpool are amazing. And they're one of, I mean, them, Chelsea and Man City are just miles ahead of everyone, I think, this year. But it was that, the combination of, this is the thing that you can't really allow for, is that Arteta getting wound up with Klopp about something, then have a big argument, then that fires up the crowd and that definitely, definitely transmits to the players. You can yeah. feel it. Yeah. And then it just seems relentless. Like there's just no way out. It's like being trapped in a corner with this massive animal coming at you. And there's no way out, especially sure. if you're Ben White trying to dribble around that animal. You can't do it. Kick the ball over the animal. You also know if you just wait and get through it, it will end. And so the motivation <laughs> yeah. really is just to get to the end, I would have thought. If, if, certainly if it was me. I'm not suggesting that that's how the Arsenal players felt. But if I was in that environment, I'd want to shut my eyes and sit down for 60 minutes until it was all over, you know? Well, um, Art uh, Rocher wrote in um, his analysis of it, and I, I think he's right, that... Thomas Partey kept being unavailable to receive passes out from the back when they're trying to do these things. And this, you have to be really brave to play out from the back, especially against Liverpool. Like, when I, and I'm joking about kicking the ball away. The way Arteta wants to keep it and play through the lines and keep possession is a way to control the game. And that's what Man City did, and that's what he would be good at helping them develop doing. But you've got um, Sambi Lukonga, who is young and uh, is just getting used to the his teammates in the league and how he wants to play under Arteta. Everyone's learning how to play under him. So he then one of the things he was brought in for is because he likes to take control of games. So he never shies away from it ever, ever, ever. But there are certain times when he's pressed, as anyone would be, where he can concede possession and, and you know, that's not good. Thomas Partey not available too often. I don't really understand Lacazette playing as this kind of 10-9 hybrid thing. But... On one hand, it's commendable they're trying to play this way and play out from the back. But when you have Liverpool going at them like that, you can just see that they're kind of off it. And what I've done here is confused two points and made none. So there you go. A bit like Arsenal. <laughs> In which case, let's move on to uh, to talk about a team that have uh, won back-to-back Premier League games set for the first time in many, many years. I can't remember the exact date, but it's Norwich, of course, uh, who beat Southampton 2-1. In this game, we had uh, returns for Gilmore and Cantwell. I'm going to ask JJ about Gilmore in a second, but will you tell me a little bit about Cantwell? Not specifically in this game, but, um, I mean, can you do that? <laughs> no, no, I don't think I can because I didn't watch no. this game. It wasn't, it wasn't no, even on fine. in Germany. It only really struck me halfway through my question that I was asking you something that you almost certainly wouldn't be able to answer. Have you, have you spoken to Uncle Damien, though? I have, yes. I text him because Uncle Damien got married last week. And so I text Uncle Damien to say, oh, big week for you, Uncle Damien. You know, not only a wedding, but two Norwich wins. Doesn't happen very often in the Premier League. He said he'd been to the game with his uh, wife 
And she was very impressed. <laughs> that's what he said. So that's his analysis. Uh, Uncle Damien's wife, um, Auntie Helen. <laughs> impressed. There you go. Nice for Dean Smith. That's all I'll say. Isn't it good to get sacked one week and then go back and play the same team that you just lost to to get sacked and beat them? That must have been quite a nice moment with the team lower down the league, huh? Yes, everyone thinks yes. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Tottenham Billy too. Gilmore, oh, Billy Gilmore. I'm so like sorry him. about right. that. I do like Billy Gilmore. Now, the reason I wanted to ask you about Billy Gilmore there is uh, obviously a fantastic player. We've seen how well he can play for Scotland. We know he can take over games, JJ. But he was not being chosen. Matthias Norman was being favoured. He's had, he's had a pretty good season, to be fair. They both played in the same team in this game. But uh, Billy Gilmore, presumably, if Smith can get him fired up, get him in the zone as they say in football, that'll be a good thing. Hmm? Well, he played Gilmore as more of an eight. He's normally a six. Ah. Dropping deep to pick up the ball and control. That's where we've seen him for Chelsea, playing the Jorginho role. Uh, and for Scotland, actually. So he plays very much in that role as, a, I'd say, it's like a deep-lying playmaker where he sits there between the defence and midfield, uh, links everything, um, hugely positionally aware like his anticipation vision uh, <laughs> for talking in football manager terms but this thing they'll be high I can't remember what he looks like a football manager but that's what he'd be good at because he knows exactly where to be and when to help link these triangles um, he'd have been great for Arsenal in that game against Liverpool coming to drop in however from what I've read of Norwich this season and seen is that when he's played that six role uh, under Farca, he would often get overrun and players would target him and try and put him under too much pressure. And then if you don't have, it might be his fault he's taking too long on the ball. I think most often if you're playing in a team like that and someone's pressing you, it's because they know there's not going to be teammates in positions around you to easily pin the ball to. It's also presumably because the opposition will all know who Billy Gilmore is because he's international footballer and he's a very exciting young Chelsea loanee, right? Presumably, your opposition teams will target him more because they think he's good. I think teams always target the six because that's the most likely player to receive the ball first from fullbacks or centre back. So they're going to have to naturally be involved. So if you can take him out of the game, you're taking out a key link for. You think of passing lanes and passing maps. You take him out, it just makes everything go tits up. JJ, do you remember the, the Jorginho situation in his first season when teams just did that? They'd have one man sitting on Jorginho and he had yeah. a terrible time in that Surrey season for six All months. All I remember about that is it, is it kind of it bred this um, typical anglicised response to it which is see you can't just come here and play football your way because look what's going to happen and then six months later or nine months later Jorginho is uh, yeah but with Gilmore you see Jorginho is good uh, Gilmore uh, he lost the ball quite a lot so I went and watched all his touches from this game uh, and he loses the ball in places where he shouldn't and that's a thing that I think you get better at with experience knowing recognising situations that are uh, bad and not giving the ball away. Jorginho doesn't really give the ball away much, for example. Sure. That's experience. That's why he'd be preferred there to Gilmore. Yeah. Um, but Gilmore's playing alongside Kenny McLean, who's another Scottish player, uh, also a box-to-box kind of player. So uh, Gilmore, although he's, I, th- I really like him as the six, uh, playing in this eight role allows him to get forward, and he's quite quick, and he can carry it, and he recognises space very uh, instantly. And you saw him a few times uh, carrying the ball at the pitch. So rather than playing his progressive passes, which is one of the things he's good at, he was uh, carrying it up the pitch and getting into advanced areas. And Norwich in this game are playing far more, like they were pushed higher up the pitch, I think, than normal, which I thought would be the opposite to what Smith would do compared to, because Farker's criticism was that they were always attacking and leaving 
space everywhere. I'd, I'd like to see how Gilmore gets on in that role, isn't he? Because then he can help out the boy Norman by coming back to help him when he's in bad situations. And Do you know something I've learned from the f- football manager there, JJ, is that um, if you loan out a player and uh, they're not played regularly yeah. or where you've asked for them to be played, you can have a go at their manager of the team that you've loaned your player out to. Now, do you think Tuchel will have been on the blower to uh, to Farker or to Smith saying, you get that, you get my boy in the team? I would imagine not them, but I'd imagine in actual real life, it's the loan manager. The loan manager. Yeah. Maybe I should delegate that one as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, quick quick uh, route around uh, Tottenham 2-1 leads, Seb. Uh, decent second half. Antonio Conte celebrating like a like a excited man. Yeah, he kind of gave um, he kind of gave the home fans a little bit of a team talk towards the end because he clearly felt from about eighty five minutes onwards as if White Hart Lane had got a little bit quiet. So he did the elder get a bit more excited gesture. The pump it, pump it. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fine. It was a win, and they were they were dreadful in the first half, but they did show a little bit of I'm not sure what the right word is purpose. I think I think you've got to upgrade fine to good based on the context of yeah, Tottenham over the last that's sort of, probably uh, true. You know, 10 games or so because the idea that they would come back into that game and win it in the second half is um, quite extraordinary just in relation to the poor performances we've seen them put in recently. Well, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I, I think another trend that was pleasing, well not trend but a kind of development, was that over the last couple of years, players who've had bad first halves rarely improve or rarely are able to do different things within the same game and yet I thought Harry Winks had a very, very mm. good second half after a very bad first. Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, ditto. I thought Eric Dyer played well pretty much throughout. Hey, really nice to see Ryan Sessegnon play again. Was once a very, very high rated player. Sure. Still is, yeah. but just had some terrible luck with injuries. I think this was his first Premier League appearance since, I think, January or February 2020. It's a really, really long time. So good to, to have him back. Wow. And it was good. It, it felt like yeah. there was... There it felt go. like there was a a reaction to the head coach, but also whatever the head coach was saying in the dressing room. And that's a really basic currency in football terms, but it's been missing for quite a long time, I suppose. So nice to have that back. <laughs> well, there you go. Even if the performance wasn't everything you would want. Hey, winning is winning. Yeah, well, exactly. Winning is winning and exciting uh, under, a, under a, a new fist-pumping coach. Anyway, we'll be back after hey, this. Also, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. I have one more, one more point oh. because one of the main issues with... Uh, certainly with Nuno Espirito Santo's time at the club and Jose Mourinho's was the lack of yards covered. And I think Tottenham outrun Leeds by about five kilometres. So that's really encouraging. That's really encouraging. It's uh, Outrunning Leeds is always impressive. Hey, exactly. Hardly an idle team, are they? So um, that was um, that was very yeah, positive. I was about to chastise you for um, interrupting me, but your point was good. So thank you very much. Well done. Yeah. Okay. We'll be back after this short break. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hmm, we're back. And before we finish today, uh, I just wanted to have a quick look at the Champions League group spots because, of course, Game 5 is about to start. We're reaching the end now of the group stages. I've got no idea what's going on because I never look at this and I always forget. So I figured maybe there's other people out there like me, JJ, and we could have a quick chat about it. Group A, Man City winning. Ah, nine points. It's going to be difficult for them not to go through now. They're playing PSG on Wednesday. Sure. That'll be a lovely game to watch. That'll be fun. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye back, on that. So that PSG be. second, uh, but there's a four-point gap between second and third. Uh, Leipzig, after four games, uh, Seb, one point. They lost the first three. They drew their fourth. That doesn't seem like Leipzig to me, but clearly I'm wrong. No, Leipzig have a difficult time. They lost again at the weekend as well. So strange one because not performing well as a team, but Christopher Nkuku is having a wonderful season. Uh, so good chance to watch him again. But yeah, um, hasn't quite worked out yet with Jesse Marsh. OK, OK. Uh, Group B, Liverpool leading the way on 12 points, all four wins uh, so far. Um, but it's interesting behind that because this is quite a strong group, JJ. We've got Porto, Atletico Madrid and AC Milan in order there. Milan on one point, having again lost three games and just drawn the one there. Uh, Porto and Atletico Madrid, anyone's to play for that second spot. And AC are sitting second in uh, Serie A just now as well. So Weird. they're not even having a bad season. Sure. It's just that, I mean, Liverpool are amazing. Yes. FC Porto are really good. Yes. Atletico Madrid are also, I mean, they're the league champions. It's funny that, isn't it? That's a tough group. I mean, that's what the Champions League is meant to be, is all like yeah. really good teams. Group it? B, tough. It's good it's actually interesting at the group stage level. because like that. Genuine, or well, generally isn't, is it? No, I agree. Yeah. And also interesting in Group C, Seb, where Ajax sit top... Uh, four games played, four games won in a group including Borussia Dortmund, Sporting Lisbon and Besiktas. Uh, very impressive. Lots of people talking about Eric Ten Hag this week, of course, as well. Well, yeah, and also straight off the back of Ajax's really good performance in Dortmund. I know Dortmund had Mats Hummels sent off, but Ajax were absolutely terrific. feels like under Ten Hag, they've acquired a little bit of a different identity in Europe. They were kind of before they were sort of, oh, good to see Ajax back. And, you know, that's nice because of their pedigree and what they represent in um footballing ideology terms but now they're a they're not to be taken lightly well 12 games played in that group zero draws yeah well also like i i think one of the things with ten hag and if he's looking to move to call man united this is very pertinent like ten hag's uh, jj was talking about this earlier ten hag's defensive record is very very good in at the area diversity this year but um more interestingly his defensive record is good with a group of players that are a little bit of a, a mismatch a couple of players playing out of position. Um, obviously, goalkeeper Andre Onana has been missing because of his ban for quite some time. Back in first team training, I think now. But, uh, you know, he's he's assembled something pretty impressive with some unlikely parts. So, um, you know, Ajax is quite a story. Well, only two goals conceded in four Champions League yeah. games so far. Very impressive from Ajax. Uh, Group D, JJ. Real Madrid lead the way on nine points with uh, three wins and a loss there. Followed closely by Inter Milan on uh, seven points. But also, uh, this is the uh, this is the group with Sherifin as well, who uh, had that uh, the famous win over over Madrid uh, on six points, could still qualify. I have not seen enough of Sheriff to know if they're actually good or not. Well, they've got six points. 
So you think they are, but this could be like in Football Manager when you have a smaller team, it just rides momentum and they're able to do something special. Yeah. It's what makes football good because sometimes these things happen. (laughs) That Football Manager analogy was so broad that you might as well have just been saying it's a bit like in football (laughs) when a small team Uh, You are 100% correct. I'm just referencing my particular Aberdeen saves where I Ah, have managed to win the Champions League. I see, yes, where the game was broken. Uh, Group E there, Seb, uh, Bayern Munich leading the way, 12 points, all four wins, followed by Barcelona. Uh, Only six points, they lost the first two games two points ahead of Benfica two games to play Barcelona look probably set to uh, to qualify you would have thought but they could uh, mess it up as of yet yeah they? but also an opportunity because obviously one of the, the low points of the Coman era was that loss in Benfica when they just got completely done and I think that was the kind of the point of no return so a little bit of a game within the group also quite interesting Bayern Munich lost on Friday night to Augsburg they were away on Friday night lost 2-1 and Julian Nagelsmann was absolutely furious for the, probably the first time since since joining the club. Nagelsmann, if you remember him, um, probably, you know, when he was young at Hoffenheim and obviously a little bit of Leipzig, like he's quite a demonstrative character. Like he's not a sit in his chair and kind of let the game pass him by kind of person. And he was properly angry after this. So probably don't want to be playing Bayern Munich this week. I wouldn't have thought. No, well, that'll be uh, Dinamo Kiev playing Bayern Munich. Uh, Barcelona play Benfica this evening too. So uh, if Barca can win the game, then it should settle that. Yeah, if they win, it means they don't have to beat Bayern to yes to qualify. Which that would seems be unlikely. really useful. Yeah, big big game for them. Group F: Man United leading the way. Well, sort of uh, seven points. Or, or also, Villarreal have seven points. That's the big uh, one of the big games of Tuesday, the early kickoff. I think it is. Um, very exciting. But this group is fairly open still because Atalanta in third place on five points. Anything could happen here, JJ. Uh, yeah. So we're just going through all the points and <laughs> working out who could. Yeah, do well. it's yeah. exciting. Why, do you have something fall- to say? Um, not really, no, this is, this is my point. <laughs> In is fact, which case, I don't know. Let's move on. <laughs> I think all we need to say here is that Man United are playing Villarreal Tuesday evening. Uh, if they win or draw, they should be They're pretty much, pretty much do, through. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that will be Michael Carrick's first. Or Darren Fletcher. Or Darren Fletcher, whoever it is, I don't know. Or Ronaldo. Uh, boring one. Group G, this is the Europa League group, this one here, isn't it? I don't want to be rude or critical, but when I don't see a Super League team, I get unhappy, Seb. Uh, Red Bull Salzburg leading the way seven points. Also, Lille, Wolfsburg and Sevilla in that order. The group very open. There's only four points splitting uh, first and fourth here. Uh, so there's lots of opportunity, things to play for still. But just tell me, how how did this group exist? <laughs> it seems like the easiest group of all time. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's subtly quite difficult because you've got Is quite it? a few. Yeah, I mean, even tell me Salz- Salzburg are a pretty good team. Sure. Who, who are new to them? Watch out for... Um, the obvious one, Karam Adeyemi, because he's going to be a star of the game. Elsewhere, Lille aren't quite what they were last season, but they are still a, a pretty formidable opponent. So yes, it would be a yes. bit disappointing in Europe, actually, given their pedigree. Like you'd think of, when you think of Sevilla, you think of being kind of street smart in European games, but not so far. Wolfsburg obviously sacked Mark van Bommel a couple of weeks ago and replaced him with Florian Kofeld, who was previously Werder Bremen manager. And that's quite interesting because Wolfsburg are quite talented, but they've been rubbish for most of the season and they just have been badly managed. But they've still got a pretty good team full of pretty good players. So they're a little bit dangerous. They uh, went two down early against Armenia Bielefeld over the weekend and then uh, came back to equalise. And Lucas Nemecha scored the second goal. Nemecha was actually, he's now a, a German international, but he was... Uh, he came through England age groups. I think he was at Manchester City. He had a, a kind of choice to make at a certain age and he opted to play for Germany. But he started to play really well. And he's playing up with Wout Wieckhorst, our old friend from many, many, many sensible transfers videos. Yeah. 
And there's a couple of other good players there. Ridley Baku is, um, is I think, is is an excellent player in the making. Alex always has always liked Zavashlaga. And you've got guys like Maximilian Arnold as well. So it's, I'd say, what, 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 watch, watch Wolfsburg. Watch Wolfsburg if you get the chance. Yeah. Be fun. Yeah. Well, paint me red and call me an apple. You know, I'm round. Sure. There we go. Sevilla are managed by uh, Julien Lopetegui. Julian Lopetegui, Lopetegui, indeed. Yes, who is also linked heavily with the Man United job. Who uh, Seb called on his uh, live stream last night. He called him um, uh, Lopetegui and Julian Lopetegui, I think you said, didn't you? It's, we record the live stream at 11 o'clock on a Group Sunday H, night. Juventus <laughs> are leading the way. Very, 12 points here. Chelsea on nine points. There's nothing to play for. Zenit St. Petersburg behind on three. It's not going to happen. That one's done. But anyway, the Champions League returns this, uh, this midweek, and what an exciting time it is for everyone involved. So, you know, Get out there and have fun. That's the end of the podcast now. I'm hoping everyone has had a nice time listening today. Uh, we'll be back next week. It'd be nice if we knew who's going to be the interim Man United boss by then. It'd be fun. It'd be fun. We don't know, but maybe we will. Uh, but we'll be back to discuss all of the all of the weekend fixtures then. Uh, so as usual, thanks to uh, to JJ Bull the Bullard. Thanks. I want to talk about the two red cards in the Aberdeen game. Oh, fun, yeah. Because <laughs> they were funny. Go on, have a quick go. All right, just because we yeah. can. I'll just read this email. Okay, you read an email. I'll tell you what happened. Do you, do you see what happened in this game between Aberdeen and Dundee United, Seb? I do not. I, I, you know, I had it entirely disengaged from the podcast. Two of the weirdest things I have seen in a game. Uh, it Cal- is funny, to be fair. Yeah. So uh, there's a red card in the first half because there's a bit of a tackle in the middle of the pitch. And then one player squares up to an Aberdeen striker called Christian Ramirez. He's American. And, uh, and then another guy called Callum Butcher comes up and like aggressively fondles his testicles. <laughs> like really, he does it subtly. So, it, so one guy's squaring up and this guy comes in on the side and just like he's, he's like a magician doing sleight of hand. It's hard to be aggressive and subtle. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite the trick. Well, it's like he's um, staring at him face to face and his, maybe his hands up. You're like a magician. You look at one hand, so the other one's fondling your balls. <laughs> That's what all magicians do, right? A well-known magician's trick, yes. <laughs> well, I couldn't be a magician. <laughs> and uh, If they're not stealing your phone, it's actually assaulting you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. I remember magician in the park once. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, and then a few minutes after that, um, Aberdeen were on the attack because they had 11 players versus 10. You want to push on then. And uh, Funso Ojo, um, who was garbage last year, but has suddenly turned into a half-decent player, comes running off the pitch and uh, you're oh, trying to slow I've down as you this. come off the pitch. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So he's running towards the, the fence where all the, st- the fence, the stand where all the, the fans are sat in. <laughs> they're not fencing. <laughs> Scottish football, isn't that low? around Scottish football grounds. Some field in the background. <laughs> and then they, they had to dodge some cows, right? <laughs> Ran past the burger van, but he's coming off of the pitch, um, trying to slow down. And he, as he gets to the stands, he's trying to slow down. And so he, as he gets there, some guy leans, o- like a fan, leans over the, the actual like gate and shoves him. Yeah. And he goes flying backwards. And so he goes up to him and squares up and says, "What are you like? What the f- are you doing?" Uh, obviously, I don't know what he, what he says, but he goes up to him and stares at him. Then comes back, going, "Fuck's sake! I can't, be- like, I can't believe this!" Really furious. And the referee sends him off. He gets shoved by the fan, and that supporter. 
as far as I know, wasn't ejected from the crowd at all. He was just got to stay yeah, there. Yeah, he yeah. shoved the boy. Well, that's because I think the security guards have no recourse if it happens behind the fence. <laughs> There's nothing they can do. That's the meadow. What do you want? The, you know, we're not in charge of the meadow. It's not technically within the didn't land it, of the stadium. Jay, 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 no. didn't, exactly. didn't, didn't, didn't the player's manager afterwards say, yeah, obviously it's like partly his fault too. Like, the guy doesn't do anything. Like he just, he's trying to slow down and he, he doesn't, there's nothing that he does which provokes it unless I've seen it wrong. Well, what I thought it would be he gets sent off for is because you might like provoke like a full-scale riot by trying to start on someone in the crowd. <laughs> so I think the referee's maybe just choosing the easy way and going like, mm, what's the best way to calm down a, a potentially volcanic situation? A fan can't do that. Like just because I've seen no. him, he, he leans over the, the the chump in the crowd, like leans over the barrier and like pushes yeah. the guy. Like it's it's there's no it's he's not nice provoking any description anyway. of that, isn't it? The chump in the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know? I wonder if some referee make these decisions without actually knowing what's happened based yeah, on what they think that's, happens. That's what, it, that's, that's what it looked like, definitely. And that's what it was, yeah. yeah. Bobby Madden is his name and he's rubbish. <laughs> well, <laughs> good to know. A specific individual referee there has been uncharacteristically shouted out on the TIFO Football Podcast. Yeah. Thank you, I mean, Jay I'm Jay. bad at my job too, so it's fine, Bobby. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Joe. <laughs> well, there we go. I was saying uh, thanks, as usual, to uh, to JJ Bull the Bullet and uh, and Herr Stafford Bloor. <sighs> Vielen Dank, Herr Devine. Yes, yes, of course. Um, thanks to our producers, uh, Sol and uh, Adonis, for today. And uh, we'll be back next week. So, uh, ta everyone. Uh, au revoir. Goodbye. Shh. Schlau?